Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. My name is Aineke Rickinen, and I'm a research assistant with the Technology and National Security Program here at CNAS. I'm extremely excited to welcome you to today's virtual panel discussion on 5G security, especially on an open interfaces approach for 5G networks. Today, we're joined by four esteemed panelists. Elsa Kania is an adjunct senior fellow on the CNAS technology team and a renowned expert on China's technology innovation. Yuka Kashino is a research fellow for Japanese security and defense policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Skylar Moore is here today in her personal capacity and as a board member of Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. Finally, I'm really pleased to introduce Martin Rasser, a senior fellow on the CNAS tech team and my co-author on our new report, Open Future, The Way Forward on 5G. And finally, as a reminder, this event is on the record and we're being recorded. With that, I'd like to hand it over to Martin Rasser for a couple of opening comments. Great, thank you so much, Heineke. Good morning, everyone. So great to join Elsa, Yuka, Skylar, and you all for this event. Very excited about this report, and I'm really looking forward to talking with everyone about what could be a whole new future for 5G in the telecommunications industry. It's very encouraging to see the growing interest in open interfaces. So you have bills being considered on Capitol Hill, the FCC just announced it would hold a day-long discussion on the topic with technical and subject matter experts from industry and civil society. That's on top of all the work already being done by industry groups such as the Open RAN Alliance and the Open RAN Policy Coalition. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, so I'll focus my remarks now on what I find to be one of the most compelling aspects of open interfaces as an alternative to the current 5G options would truly upend the status quo. So the focus so far has been on banning Huawei and propping up Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung, or perhaps even creating a US national champion. But then you're still faced with a very limited pool of vendors, which carries supply chain and security risks, and you still have to contend with Chinese industrial policy. What I find so compelling about open interfaces as an alternative is that it directly addresses concerns over untrusted vendors such as Huawei, as well as tackling the broader inefficiencies of the industry. Such an approach offers the potential to tackle the 5G dilemma with innovation in a newly competitive industry that would help to lower costs and improve security. In my mind, that's a much more desirable solution than trying to tinker with the current paradigm. So let me leave it here for now, but looking forward to a great discussion. Thank you all for being here. All right, thanks so much, Martin, for kicking us off. Um, now I'd like to turn to Skylar. Hey folks, my name is Skylar Moore. Thank you all for joining us today and CNAS, thank you so much for having me along. Uh, as Eineke noted earlier, I'm here in my personal capacity uh, and also as board member of Young Professionals in Foreign Policy. Uh, in my day job, I'm the Director of Science and Technology at the Defense Innovation Board. Uh, but again, I'd like to reiterate that any comments that I say today or in my personal capacity, and I do not speak for the Department of Defense. Um, so to tag on to what Martin has said and set the stage for some of the conversation we'll have today, uh, I'd like to 
point out a couple of specific use cases that the Department of Defense and uh, writ large society should be excited about looking at 5G, and then also some potential concerns that we'll need to address along the way. Um, so in a military context, there is a huge potential for 5G, and I'd like to get a little bit specific because I think it's easy to just say that more things will be connected and that doesn't really mean anything or show you what exactly that's going to do. Um, but there are examples like ARVR that are going to improve training by leaps and bounds that might be deployed to the edge and out into the field so that you have examples like, um, you know, an F-35 helmet where you can look through your platform or something like a tank where you can be inside and use that virtual realm to be able to look around and have better situational awareness. And then improving strategic decision-making by improving real-time awareness of each sensor that is out on the battlefield. Um, there are examples like with smart warehousing where implied in a military context means that you can have improved maintenance, ensuring that you have an understanding of each of your systems and what they'll need moving forward. And so really these use cases suggest to us that this is really a critical area to focus on. And again, as Martin mentioned, is really going to um, create a new environment of capability going forward. Now, that comes with a flip side of challenges, which mostly includes security. You know, 5G is incredible for the fact that it can push volume, speed, and number of end users that are involved in any network. Uh, but the number of end users means that there is security risk included in an ex expanded attack surface. And so part of what I'd love to talk about today is about how you mitigate those challenges, how you think about it in the context of these other technologies and enabling uh, methods that will need to be layered on top of 5G, like virtualization, software-defined networking, network slicing, and others to ensure that we are maximizing our use of this capability while also ensuring that we're doing it in a safe and secure way. Thank you. Thanks so much, Skylar. It's definitely interesting to watch um, the Department of Defense as a stakeholder in this space and increasingly a player in it. Thank you. Um, all right, Yuka, I know you've done some interesting work um, looking at Japan and the UK, so I'd like to turn it over to you. Hi, um, thank you very much, Ainiki, and thank you for having me to speak at this event on a very important topic. And congratulations again for the launch of this report. Um, so in my opening remarks, I would like to make some comments about why governments play a greater role in promoting secure and reliable 5G and beyond. And second, why Japanese industries and governments have emerged as an active player to promote open interfaces model. And thirdly, why collaboration with like-minded allies and technology partners is critical to develop and spread reliable and cost-effective solutions for 5G and even 6G. So firstly, the government's role in developing and deploying secure and reliable network infrastructure has become ever more important in the 5G era compared to 4G. As Martin and Skylar, Skylar has um, laid out, 5G is fundamentally different from previous generations because it will connect basically everything from smartphones, automobiles, factories, nuclear plants, or military technologies, and will be the backbone of our everyday economic and social activities. So the security and trust in this infrastructure is ever more important because of the national security implications. And that is why governments have critical roles to play to ensure and promote open competition by trusted vendors in the 5G markets. Um, as the report pointed out, the disruptive nature of the open interface architecture offers opportunities to improve the highly concentrated nature of the existing network market. Um, and it is the government's responsibility to step in to offer policy support to foster R&D for open run, for instance, or cooperation with like-minded allies and partners is also going to be very important. 
Now here, Japan offers a unique case study for the United States as a like-minded country that leverages close government and industry relations to promote open architecture model and to simultaneously restore international competitiveness. So firstly, like the United States, Japan significantly lost its global competitiveness after 3G. For 5G, for instance, NEC and Fujitsu are two strong domestic equipment suppliers, but their global shares um, for base stations are less than 1%. However, the government's strategic and economic concerns over the rapid rise and potential dominance of the Chinese digital infrastructure married with the Japanese telecommunications industry's ambitions to restore the global market share through Open RAN or the All RAN alliances. And here, the historical close government industry relations also played a key role, for instance, where Japanese operators were quick to decide to exclude Chinese equipment vendors from both the public and civil networks by early 2019, and responding to the industry's need for open interfaces. By 2020, Japan's economic ministry swiftly adopted open architecture as the core strategy for Japan to restore international competitiveness for 5G and, and 6G. So, um, 2020 was also a milestone for the open architecture in Japan to speed up the 5G network deployment using equipment of ORAN specification. The diet passed laws to give tax breaks with conditions for operators meeting the open requirements. And uh, the Ministry of Internal Communications and the Economic Ministries are also funding, for instance, a total of 9 billion yen to develop systems to assess the interoperability between vendors, um, different vendors under the ORAN ORAN um, specifications. On June 30th, the government also published a 60 strategy based on the open architecture model. So finally, I wanted to emphasize that Japan is the most suitable strategic partner for the United States to promote the open architecture. They, these two countries are the technology powers, but lags in the telecommunications markets. And the, the United States' closest ally, Japan is the United States' closest ally with shared geopolitical interests and the visions for free and open in the Pacific, the shared commitment, for instance, to realizing a global digital economy environment that is open, interoperable, and reliable and secure. It could also leverage existing bilateral coordination mechanisms, such as the Japan-U.S. Strategic Digital Economy Partnership to um, disc further discuss these policy areas. So Japan is still struggling to restore the competitiveness in the world, but it made a bold move to make open interfaces as its core strategy for a future um, network. And it also expressed interest and willingness to cooperate with other like-minded countries and partners to pursue joint R&Ds for 5G and beyond. So for effective bilateral or multilateral cooperation in the longer term, it is critical for the U.S. government to articulate um, the the or some kind of a national strategy based on this um, open interfaces. Thank you. Thanks so much, Yuka. And I'm glad you brought up um, bilateral and multilateral approaches, because I think that'll be, I agree, that'll be really critical. And also, you know, I hope we can um, tease out a little bit on um, 6G later on in our discussion. So thank you for bringing that up as well. Um, I'd like to now hand it over to Elsa. I know you've been following um, developments in China and 5G particularly closely. Uh, thank you. And first of all, congratulations on a great and very timely report and really glad to be joining you all to discuss this morning. Well, 5G certainly has been a very lively debate on the policy front because of what is at stake in terms of America's future and the trajectory of the emerging technological competition between the U.S. and China. And as we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, 
the demand for 5G and the urgency and importance of progressing in its development and deployment has never been clearer than it is today. And uh, concer it's concerning to me as an American, however, that we're seeing some of the exciting innovations in 5G happening first in China in some cases, whether that's a Chinese military hospital uh, breaking new ground with a 5G-enabled surgery or some of the ways that the Chinese government had leveraged 5G in the course of the pandemic, uh, such as for 5G-enabled medical robotics uh, to support diagnostics and uh, disinfection and and in the aftermath of the pandemic, as the Chinese economy is looking for new sources of growth and its recovery, Xi Jinping has personally highlighted the importance of 5G as among other critical types, uh, forms of new type infrastructure as a priority agenda for China's development going forward. So one of the reasons I, I, I'm really excited about this report and the, the policy recommendations you're proposing is that this really, this uh, focus on a more open approach is is a chance to start to change paradigms and start to compete with China by presenting more of a positive and proactive approach that uh, enables alternatives and new ways to work with our allies and partners and to really and to really uh, leverage and realize the potential of public-private partnership in the space uh, through supporting efforts like the ORAN Alliance and to have a really American approach to compete uh, when we're seeing such uh, significant investments and deployments underway in China today. And of course, at the same time, this is a complex global landscape. There's also, interestingly, a, a decent amount of collaboration uh, with certain uh, Chinese companies that, that ha are involved in these initiatives as well. So, and I think uh, while we try to grapple with the question of how to ensure security from a more systemic perspective, how to hopefully move towards a more a more measured and coherent approach rather than focusing only or primarily on banning Chinese companies, which is only only one step and doesn't really resolve the fundamental challenges at stake in terms of security, thinking about how to how moving towards an open arc open architecture could uh, could be more secure and collaborative, I think is a uh, yeah, definitely a topic I'll look forward to discussing and I will will welcome the questions and uh, continued insights from from all of you. Uh, certainly it's a, a quite an important moment to be having these conversations as we're all stuck at home and thinking about what 5G could do for us, whether that's uh, telemedicine, distance learning, or virtual reality to make our at-home experiences a little bit more lively. All right, thank you so much, Elsa, for your comments. And speaking of positive, proactive, and a coherent approach, uh, my first question um, for our panel today is for Martin. And it's you talked about this briefly, but why, inter why open interfaces? And in particular, what do you see as the greatest challenges to implementation? Well, let's actually start with what open interfaces actually are. So now the report has a, a tech primer that explains the key aspects, but in a nutshell, it means the ability of equipment of any vendor to work with that of another. With open interfaces, you can have modular architecture, as, as Elsa mentioned, for your networks. So that means that an operator can build a network using multiple vendors for a range of offerings, rather than being locked in with a single large integrated vendor, uh, which is the situation that we're in now. So part of what makes this possible is using software for functions currently done by proprietary hardware, and that's a process called network virtualization. So in other words, vendors can focus now on, on parts of the RAN, uh, so that's short for radio access network, and not have to provide a complete solution to be a viable vendor. 
Now, the common shorthand, uh, which we've already started using for this whole concept, is, is open RAN. So, now, these same attributes also pose some of the, the biggest challenges to implementation. Right now, the market for RAN equipment is dominated by four companies, Huawei, Ericsson, Nokia, and Samsung. They provide proprietary hardware, such as base stations, that don't interoperate. This means that you're locked into one of these companies as a vendor for a large portion or perhaps even your entire network. Now, that's great business for them. It's not good news for operators. So there are entrenched business interests in not having Open RAN become a viable option. The good news, though, is that operators are eager to break open this market so that they have much greater choice in vendors. This would lead to better and more varied offerings and likely cost savings as well. So there's growing momentum behind uh, the interest in Open RAN for these very reasons. Because, again, like we point out at numerous points in the report, it, it really upends that status quo that, that is um, causing some problems for us right now. Great, Martin, thank you. Um, and so um, you mentioned briefly um, about industry momentum from business interests. And so my next question is for Skylar, um, and it is, what is the role the Department of Defense might play in 5G development? It's an interesting case because it doesn't have you know, business interests in the same way. Um, and then also you had mentioned briefly earlier about um, increased attack surfaces. And so would you say that the department faces unique challenges for 5G, 5G security? Thanks, Aniki. Sure, so I can address both of those, those pieces. So in terms of the role that DOD plays, I think that we're always trying to be careful in making sure that we are collaborating with commercial sector and not um, overstepping the bounds of what is realistically the role that we can play. Uh, in the current situation, I think it's tied to your second question in part. So uh, certainly we have a role in clarifying the risks that exist around security not only from a national security perspective, but also for any company that's working in this space and would be operating on these networks. Um, and then the second piece I actually think is very interesting in terms of looking forward to 6G and future iterations of 5G, where there may not be a compelling business case right now for companies to really be leaning in and pushing the envelope in terms of uh, research and development for those pieces. Also, certainly there are companies that are doing that, but DoD can certainly play a role in hosting environments for those companies to sort of try to play in that space or investing money, again, in those very early stage technologies that may not exactly be uh, as heavily invested in currently. So I think that, that that's reasonably the role that DOD can play. And then also there are going to be pockets where DOD can push the envelope of application simply because we operate in a very drastic environment where uh, we, may be, we may unintentionally or unintentionally uh, discover technological advances that wouldn't have been found otherwise simply by virtue of the environment that we're working in. So that's kind of the first piece, I think, of your question. The second one on the security side is interesting because I think that uh, this ORAN concept is critical in terms of expanding the uh, aperture of vendors who can participate but I would note that it is not certainly not the silver bullet that's going to fix the security issue. Just because they're broken out pieces of the network does not mean that you're set, you're banning Chinese vendors from all of it. I mean, if it's disaggregated and modular, you can certainly still have Chinese vendors flooding that and still uh, presenting the same security risk. Now, I would note that on top of that, there are certain 
uh, methods that you can take to mitigate some of those concerns. I think that Martin mentioned a couple of them, but you know, applying virtualization where you are abstracting above the hardware layer will enable you to have better control over who is using parts of the network for what. Similarly, if you're using software-defined network to abstract above the control plane, you have another element of control that you are able to mitigate who is using the network for what. Uh, and then there are also just best practices that exist right now in the commercial sector, like zero trust architecture, that would really become critical in a situation like this, where your attack surface is significantly expanded because of the number of end users that are able to engage with a network. And so what you really need to be able to do is exquisitely manage the interface between users, devices, and the pockets of the network that they really need and do not need. And so implementing some sort of best practices that currently exist in commercial sector, particularly on the DOD side, will be critical. But DOD can also encourage pockets of commercial sector that have not yet moved towards that to implement those same best practices. Um, and I would note that I think, you know, national security is a really compelling incentive for DOD. I don't know that national security is as compelling as a business case. And I think that that's perfectly acceptable and that uh, in our communication to commercial sector, uh, DOD can certainly do a better job and ensure that we are balancing those, those two items and showing commercial sector how uh, these best practices will support their operations in the near and long term. Thanks, Annie. That's true, and I think it's interesting you mentioned, you know, what is the value of security in private industry? And so interesting to think about um, sort of some of the cost-benefit analysis versus, you know, what we need for national security purposes. Um, I want to tease out a little bit more on collaboration between government and private industry. And so my next question is for Yuka. Um, and so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, Japan's role in terms of, you know, its leadership in 5G um, deployment using these innovative approaches. Um, and then to anyone else in the panel, what would an open interfaces approach mean for um, international private sector collaboration or for nation state multilateral initiatives? So big two part question there. Thank you. Um, so I, I believe, well, there was a um, very great case study um, in the report about Rakuten um, using both US and Japanese technologies on hardware and software. But so Rakuten, for instance, is leading the trend um, of interfaces by deploying the world's first end-to-end -end virtualized network based on all-round specifications. But um, I believe that there are two uniquenesses that allow Japan to become some kind of like a test bed for this um, open interface model. So first is that Japan I would probably say luckily had Rakuten, a disruptive new entrant to this highly dominated um, Japanese telecommunications market. Um, so as an e-commerce giant and a, and a previously startup, um, it's now a very large company, but it has an investment cap capacity in R&D to adopt the most advanced network architecture. Um, and furthermore, um, in order for Rakuten to compete with these existing uh, traditional um, operators, Rakuten had to find innovative and cost-effective solutions to expand market share and to attract mobile subscribers on, from, from um, zero. So um, that was a, one unique factor. And the second factor is 
something that I touched on my opening comment as well, but the historically close government and industry ties, um, I believe also allowed the government to understand the industry needs to promote open interfaces and to craft strategies and adopt policy measures to support companies to regain the international competitiveness. Um, so I, I think one um, for the US audiences, especially um, so Japan's um, METI, for instance, is the Ministry of Economic Trade and Industry. So this um, ministry, for instance, um, is also responsible for crafting industrial policies and um, policies for international competitiveness of domestic companies. So that's a one unique, um, probably, ministry that Japan has um, that maybe some other countries does not really have. Um, and so, so these um, these government, and then also um, maybe the third point is the, the under the Abe um, under the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe administration, um, the government had centralized on um, its policy making processes and in in the Kante. So now there's more interagency coordinations um, um, in, in the Japanese government. So the the close collaboration between the communication ministry and economic ministries. Um, probably facilitated um, Japan's recent policy measures like tax breaks and um, and um, and other R&D efforts. So what other countries could take away from this example? Probably first is that barriers are quite low for the non-telecommunications equipment on traditional suppliers um, to enter um, the mobile network market in an open architecture model. And then maybe second, it would be that close government industry relations would be a key to foster markets for um, critical technology sectors with national security implications. But um, I would also just mention that it is still too early to be too optimistic about this, um, this the, the open interface models. And it remains to be seen if um, this, this model in Japan is um, if, if um, Rakuten, for instance, could overcome the various hurdles and risks that it, it has um, currently facing in deploying 5G, um, for instance, it has delayed its um, commercial uh, 5G launch, um, and it, which was supposed to be in, in June. So there are several risks um, that, that remains to be unseen. All right, we'll be watching closely to see how that rollout goes. And so I do want to open this question um, to the rest of the panel if you have thoughts on um, what an open interfaces approach might mean for um, international private sector collaboration or for nation state multilateral initiatives. So I, I think one uh, interesting dimension of this will be how do we think about the role of Chinese companies in the ORAN alliance? Since uh, as a, a uh, in contrast to Huawei's position on this paradigm, which is decidedly skeptical and uh, not, not terribly enthusiastic with good reason, since uh, Huawei among the other uh, major companies in the space would be among those most uh, adversely affected if this, uh, if this uh, Orion model started to gain, gain steam, China Mobile, China Telecom, and China Unicom are all involved in the Oran Alliance and are also involved in the launch of a new open test and integration center last fall, which is uh, starting to test and experiment with some of these technologies and work towards, work towards progress and having a more mature an open architecture that's ready to deploy. So an interesting question would be, on one hand, we're seeing the U.S. State Department uh, under Pompeo, promote this clean network initiative that envisions excluding all Chinese companies. Yet at the same time, if we are truly committed to an open 
approach that uh, would be modular, would have the potential for interoperability and would enable multiple vendors to be involved, then perhaps we should welcome the involvement of, of these Chinese carriers in the ORAN alliance so long as this uh, so long as this occurs with adequate transparency about the evolution of the standards and the technology, and so long as there's also good governance. And it's one of the concerns about uh, Huawei's role, for instance, in 3GPP, as, as well as other Chinese companies, has been that there's been some allegations of block voting, of national interest driving the process uh, with direction from the Chinese government rather than uh, collaboration among industries. So in, 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 in this regard, perhaps the ORAN alliance could be a test case for whether working with players like China Mobile uh, and the U.S. government supporting this kind of uh, open industry uh, engagement and collaboration is a viable paradigm going forward and how to ensure that we pay, pay adequate attention to security in the process and, uh, and, and open up of, continue to open up the field for competition and recognize that there will be some Chinese companies involved and which makes a, having robust measures as scholar was discussing to mitigate the security risks at all levels and at all layers in the network all, all the more critical. Thanks, Elsa. Actually, if you don't mind, I'd like to dig a little bit more into that. Um, you mentioned China Mobile and China Unicom, which I'm thankful for because in 5G world, you know, Huawei is sort of the first that comes to mind. Um, it's known for being, you know, vertically integrated, all those um, proprietary things that open interfaces sort of look to break down. And so um, I guess my question is, how, um, how compatible is an open interfaces um, approach with um, some of China's companies like Huawei or perhaps um, ZTE, and then also, um, what would you anticipate if the U.S. government um, and Japan sort of, you know, push forward and champion this concept? Um, how might the party state respond, and you know, how might this impact um, some of the politics in standard-setting bodies? So uh, these Chinese carriers do appear to be relatively enthusiastic, all in all, about uh, about the ORAN alliance, at least in terms of. Their active involvement. I believe China Mobile was actually one of the founding members and co-chairs uh, its technical steering uh, committee at the moment. So yeah, I think this does show that the relative monopoly uh, that Huawei has has established is not uh, the ideal status quo, even to uh, certain Chinese companies that do want more options, more flexibility, or that believe that this this architecture and uh, the design principles informing it uh, could be could be beneficial and worth pursuing. And interesting as well that beyond these carriers, uh, Tencent has announced some major investments and is working on uh, 5G open platforms that could have interesting applications in gaming going forward. Uh, and yeah, so I think that there we could very well see China through the efforts of these companies actually seeking to lead uh, in uh, within o within the ORAN approach as well, and that I think does uh, raise perhaps some concerns from a competitive perspective, or at least does highlight the importance of ensuring adequate uh, tra transparency and good governance, as I mentioned, within the pro within uh, the processes through which the standards and foundational technologies of for ORAN are being developed, as well as uh, trying to ensure that the that the United States is is active in supporting our own efforts here, including in moving towards more experimentation and deployment. Uh, now, U.S. carriers and American companies are involved in some uh, intriguing and encouraging initiatives on, on these fronts as well. But yeah, I think that I mean, clearly when 
when Xi Jinping has highlighted that uh, 5G is a priority across the board, and we see even cities in China like Shanghai launching their own 5G action plans and initiatives, I think the uh, U.S. can't assume that we will inherently have an advantage in a more open approach, and we could very well see the Chinese government pivot to promote and invest more heavily if this, if this alternative paradigm appears to be gaining a dominance and prominence relative to Huawei. And of course, I think Huawei continues to be a de facto national champion on, on many fronts. I think despite some of the recent measures and restrictions, uh, the Chinese government appears to be on track to continue to support it. I have a hard time imagining Huawei going under, even, even though some of the damage uh, because of its loss of access to the chips and semiconductors it still relies upon are, are really below. And that's, that's a whole other debate in terms of how to think about uh, the the justification and the ramifications of some of those policies, including for American companies. But yeah, I think we definitely can't, can't assume American advantage on, on any front these days, at least not without sustained investment, not just in the research and development, but also in having a workforce and the engineers, as well as just technical professionals to, to develop and build and deploy 5G and start to move towards a point where we have uh, enough of the network to start uh, start explore the promising applications of it. And I think uh, beyond the focus on the software here and the virtualization, there still will be places where Chinese companies have a potential advantage. For instance, in the 5G antennas that are are still criti uh, critical. Uh, some of the um, important components to that, like uh, gallium, uh, w one of the rare earth uh, minerals that's important to that. China has 95% of the world supply on that front, and Huawei has a pretty dominant proportion of the patents there, and still has a pretty strong position when it comes to comes to these antennas. And yeah, so I think certainly a combination of focusing on moving towards this open approach, greater virtualization, but also recognizing that we still need to have some of the, some of the basics of in, uh, hardware and infrastructure underlying that, and that there may be going forward, 5G may not be a single thing. It's more of a marathon than a race, and there could be we could very well see multiple approaches and architectures coexisting, including for different applications, inside versus outside, consumer relative to industrial. So I think uh, I I wouldn't be surprised to th see the Chinese government continue to hedge its bets across different approaches and investments. And I think the U.S. government, uh, while while moving in this direction, as your report suggests, should continue to think about the whole range of options that are coming into play with 5G today. I'd also tack on to that. Um, I appreciate all of that, Elsa, and all of the thought that you've given this topic. And, you know, Elsa and I have had this conversation before in terms of how critical this conversation is right now about 5G and China's role in it, but that also uh, making sure that we don't get tunnel vision on Huawei specifically, and then also, frankly, the broader Chinese industry, where this topic is important and these security risks exist and these, this potential exists agnostic of uh, the other entities or companies or countries on the other side. And just as Elsa said, this is going to be an iterative process. It's not that this is going to be you know, you're going to have a snapshot of 5G that continues for 10 years and does not iterate, but there will be different versions of this. There will be different players that come onto the field. Um, although the news cycle may portray it that way, you know, China does not have a monopoly on security risk. And so the U.S. needs to be aware of the fact that while it is certainly a significant risk, there are others that exist that continue to make this topic very important. Um, and so keeping just an exclusively narrow vision on either a single company or even a single country 
will be to our detriment in the long term, I think. Those are great points, Elsa and Skylar. Thank you. Um, I just want to thank also our audience um, who have started sending questions in. Um, if you'll permit me, I have a couple of outstanding questions, but then we'll be turning to those shortly. And so if you have questions for our panel, um, please feel free to send those in with the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And in the next couple of minutes or so, if you're on the phone, please go ahead and press star nine if you'd like to raise your hand. Um, and so speaking of tunnel vision, actually, my next question is for Martin, and it's, um, would the elements of an open interfaces approach also benefit other technology areas outside of 5G? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Aniki. I think the answer is uh, definitely yes. Since 5G is gonna be an enabler for whole range of capabilities, self-driving cars, virtual reality, telemedicine, you know, internet of things. So having greater vendor diversity for telecommunications allows operators to provide you know, better, more varied services. Also, I think because you're ultimately able to provide a more robust, secure, and resilient 5G infrastructure, you also start building increased trust with, with users. Now, then with that trust, you, know, you, you get confidence to try to use communications networks in new ways that could help companies improve and expand their current offerings, could perhaps create whole new industries. So very similar to what we saw with 4G, where you have companies like, like YouTube and, and Google and Netflix and Uber just you know, create whole new business segments. You have the potential uh, for the same thing to happen with 5G. I think in particular, um, you know, to just touch on some of the themes that, uh, that Skylar and Elsa were just touching on, um, having options and flexibility in how you build and develop your networks, that's going to help a lot for all the uh, downstream capabilities that 5G uh, capabilities will afford you. So uh, on, on that front, I'm, I'm quite bullish that uh, open interfaces can really help accelerate what the true potential of 5G networks could be for our economies and our society. And I would just add quickly that I think this approach has a lot of viability and importance beyond the context of 5G as well. And I'd point to the Open Technology Fund, which has been a really great success story in developing and supporting progress in internet freedom technologies to circumvent censorship and surveillance and ensure, ensure security. And it's uh, produced some really great uh, products that some of us use on a day-to-day -day basis, like Signal. And yeah, and it's been concerning to see recently uh, alarm that funding may be being withheld from the Open Technology Fund by the current administration or that it has not been as robustly supported and able to continue its efforts with this open and open source approach as as one would hope, especially given uh, the, the importance of these technologies, especially to those who are living under repressive regimes and who uh, can rely on and leverage these tools to have uh, more open and uh, freedom of communication. So I hope that uh, this yeah, I hope that this debate on what it means to have a more, a more open approach, an open paradigm for technological development uh, can be continued and sustained uh, be beyond 5G, since there, there is a lot at stake when we think about uh, not just uh, technological competition, but uh, concerns about how to ensure that our values and our principles are consistent with the approaches to technology we're promoting and the alternatives we're trying to advance relative to China's model of cyber sovereignty with, and a much more closed and proprietary ecosystem that has uh, taken part within the Great Firewall. 
Great. Thank you both. Um, so I have one last question prepared here today. Um, and again, thank you to everyone who's been sending your questions in already. Please feel free to keep sending those our way. Um, and my last question here is, um, Elsa, you had mentioned about um, 5G-enabled medical robotics. Um, Yuka, I think you had mentioned some delays in terms of rollouts. Um, and so my question is for anyone on the panel. Um, is the pandemic slowing down the rollout? Is it making it more urgent? What do you see as the way forward in the next couple of years, given the current situation? So it seems that uh, the pandemic has been accelerating uh, 5G deployment within China, given the importance the Chinese government has placed on it. I'd, I'm concerned that, the, that at the same time, we're seeing a slowdown in the US and Europe and elsewhere around the world, just given the extent of the disruption that uh, COVID-19 is causing. But I, I hope that we can also, given kids are going back to school, that as so many communities in the United States are still not connected. And that, that kind of connectivity is, is, is a basic prerequisite for having access to social services, to education, that, that we here in the United States as well can really recognize the uh, the urgency that comes with this crisis and continue to support to support uh, as part of the stimulus and otherwise efforts to deploy 5G or even just basic broadband to communities that aren't connected and to up upgrade and enhance the resilience of our networks uh, and our crit critical infrastructure across the board, given we've seen major power outages, natural disasters. It's not just cyber threats. Uh, the real world can be an adversarial environment, especially these days. And I hope that uh, as we think about... Uh, the long-term uh, challenges that are ahead, especially in terms of uh, distance learning and education, the use of virtual reality uh, enabled by 5G and, and new techniques for more adaptive learning uh, can be that, that greater, greater demand and attention to those applications could be, could be one takeaway from this, as well as, of course, as well as, of course, telemedicine, healthcare, uh, greater remote access to services. These are all really important and impactful applications that can have a tangible impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, that was well said, Elsa. You know, I would just say the, uh, the current situation, the, the pandemic that we're dealing with just underscores how critically important communications networks are. If you're connected, um, you can do quite well in terms of, you know, your day-to-day -day job functions and keeping in touch with family and so forth. So this whole uh, crisis that we're in right now really points to how important it is that we make sure that our networks are secure, they are robust and resilient. And I think it also points to, you know, that whole narrative of this, this race to 5G, this urgency is ultimately, you know, false narrative. It's, it's a marketing gimmick, primarily pushed by Huawei, I think, and done so quite effectively because um, you could argue that, yes, they, they were ahead in deployments and were prodding other countries to, to do the same with, with their equipment. But when you look at a bigger picture, okay, perhaps a delay of a few months because your personnel isn't able to, to install certain base stations and antennas and so forth. But to the point that Skylar raised earlier, right, this is a long-term iterative process. So over the course of a decade, you know, does a few months of a, of a delayed uh, base, uh, base station installation make that much of a difference? Probably not. I think the uh, the emphasis should be on making sure that the networks that we're building are indeed the best and the safest that we can possibly put together um, and that 
you know, that whole notion of having to rush out and, and get it first is probably not the best way to, to look at the issue. I think um, if, I, if I may um, answer this question as well, um, I think it really depends on the countries um, about the impact of the pandemic in terms of 5G rollouts and the thinking be, be, um, beyond the 5G. For instance, with countries um, that have the capability um, or the technology um, for network equipments like, like Japan, I think it definitely proved that, um, I mean, the pandemic has accelerated digitalization um, and the need for, for 5G and even and I'm thinking about 6G and beyond. But for other countries that doesn't have um, these domestic capabilities or hasn't decided on the supplier the vendors, I think the pandemic um, had turned the, the countries to shift to domestic health policies and it has certainly delayed their decisions on what kind of equipments and which which vendors they want to use on for for their for their domestic 5G and also indirectly from the pandemic another um, I, I I would say that um, there's another calculations that countries now need to make um, under the the increased um, competition um, technology and economic competition between U.S. and China um, that has heated up um, during the pandemic and um, the various um, sanctions. Um, and for instance, the banning of the, the chip, chip export from Taiwan and how that could factor into the actual security um, of the 5G that the country is, is, is trying to deploy. Um, UK, um, the country that I'm, I'm currently in, is a good example of how it um, kind of you know, um, made a decision, but then then had to reconsider and, and go back and do, do these assessments. So I think overall, um, the whether the pandemic has accelerated their, their deployment schedule um, really depends on the countries. Wonderful, thank you. And with that, I'm excited to turn over to some of our audience questions here. Um, I'm actually gonna fold two together for our first one, and this one is for Skylar. Um, let's see, this comes from Declan Tid, and he asks, he or she asks, from what I understand, 5G frequency waves travel a very short distance, especially in the 24 plus gigahertz range. Additionally, I've seen that these waves have difficulties getting through walls and glass. How will 5G benefit the DoD in battle space theaters, or would it primarily be used for defense infrastructure? Defense infrastructure. And then second, we have a question from Will McKenzie, similarly on DoD. What approach to spectrum management, for example, spectrum sharing, spectrum reallocation, will best protect DoD missions while meeting growing commercial demands? Sure. Um, okay, so I'll tackle that first one. Uh, Thank you, Jacqueline, and, and for your questions. So in terms of millimeter wave and its propagation, um, I think that it's, it's certainly a well-covered topic. Certainly there are challenges right now in ensuring that millimeter wave is actually usable in certain contexts. Uh, I, I think of this in a, in a DOD context, but I think it's agnostic of DOD. I think it's writ large as something where millimeter wave should be approached with practical optimism, uh, built in with a healthy amount of graceful degradability to other forms of connectivity. So you pray for clear skies and no people walking in front of your millimeter wave, but you assume that that might happen. And if so, you need to be able to drop down two sub six to 4G to 3G further down. Uh, and so I think that DOD certainly takes that seriously in terms of resiliency and ensuring that your systems have connectivity. And you know, perhaps a rudimentary way of explaining this might be you ideally want to have the connectivity to see a 3D image of a person walking around, 
uh, in a battle space and understanding what buildings are where, but you will accept a stick figure walking around in a very, very kind of sketched out version of that because that is better than nothing. And so the ability to walk down from network connectivity as needed, uh, depending on what your abilities are, will be a critical piece of that. Now, I would certainly note that this is something that both commercial sector and DoD is working on. You know, sub six has been saying it for a while now, but sub six is getting pretty crowded and also millimeter wave holds a really exquisite capability. And so I think everyone is really working to get past that propagation issue. But right now, yes, absolutely, that's a significant limit. And I think that uh, being practical about the potential and the limitations of millimeter wave will be critical. Uh, for the second question, in terms of spectrum management and how DOD thinks about that, uh, so I, before, before I speak, I, I want to make sure that anybody who jumped on the call late, uh, I am speaking in my personal capacity. I am not speaking for the Defense Innovation Board or for DOD. This is simply in my personal understanding of these uh, topics. So for spectrum management, uh, I'm sure that folks have seen in the past couple of weeks that there's been agreement opening up about it. Um, a good chunk from 3.4 to 3.5 thereabouts of, of spectrum for sharing. And so I think that for DOD, it really, the debate has been around that question of sharing versus clearing spectrum and moving elsewhere. And I do think that for DOD, you know, some of those operations or systems that operate in sub six are critical to national security and the risks associated with entirely moving them and the gap in operationality would be dire in many cases. And so the sharing option is certainly something that helps bridge that gap in certain ways. It is by no means a perfect solution. There are gonna continue to be challenges and conversations to be had about how exactly that sharing works because I can fully understand why commercial vendors would uh, maybe balk at the concept of having to share, especially if it means that DOD may have priority and may be able to just elbow everybody out of the spectrum if they really needed to whether in terms of geography or time. And so it's, again, it's a conversation that needs to continue to be had, but also there are technical solutions that are being worked on that will improve spectrum sharing and limit that elbowing and allow for both users to actually get that comprehensive use of that network without feeling like they're having their toes stepped on. All right, thank you so much, Skylar. Um, for the second question, I'm going to, um, again, pair two together. One comes from Eric Wenger and the other one from John Pelson. And so Eric Wenger asks, we sometimes hear the view that the US government should invest in companies that are incumbent sources of hardware RAN. We believe instead in market-based approaches. Opening the RAN interfaces to competition will lower barriers to entry and spark a new wave of innovation. Can the panel offer uh, a view about this view, agree or disagree, and if so, what should governments be doing to level the playing field for the market? Do prog proposals point the way forward? And then sort of as a pairing question um, that kind of counterbalances, John Pelson asks um, that uh, carriers don't put a lot of leading edge stuff in their actual field networks. They want vendors with proven reliability, scale, demonstrated cost benefits. Do you think it will take years before ORAN networks are actually deployed by a major carrier and who might lead the way? And so these questions about you open the playing fields, but you know, do all companies really want these open and how do we, how do we bridge these two? Well, I'll jump in first and uh, address some of that. Uh, so first to, uh, to Eric's question. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I, um, you know, in my opening remarks, I, I noted that w one of the things that I find most interesting about an open interfaces approach is that you step out of that that 
paradigm that we're in now where you only have a, a small number of hardware vendors that, that provide the necessary RAN equipment. What I think would be very beneficial, um, not just for the United States, but for just the telecommunications sector globally, is if you can introduce uh, vendor diversity um, and then not be dependent on just a, an oligopoly for the necessary RAN equipment. Um, that I think is, is one of the most uh, promising aspects of this whole concept. Um, as far as you know, how long it would take to deploy, I, I mean, there, there's lots of RAN, uh, open RAN deployments uh, currently in operation around the world. Um, there's uh, several networks in the United States. There's numerous ones in Europe and South America and in East Asia. The Rakuten deployment is uh, the biggest one so far. Uh, the current 4G Rakuten deployment is an open RAN deployment. Now, Yuka did mention that the 5G deployment is delayed. So, you know, still wait and see um, how, how well that goes. But there are very good proof points. But I, I will grant that uh, the issue of scalability um, isn't fully proven yet although all the signs point that um, it shouldn't be an issue in terms of uh, actual scaling up these, these regional networks that are currently in operation. Those same principles should apply to a nationwide network as well. So ultimately, I think the time frame would be uh, in the low single-digit years to really understand how feasible it is to do this on, on a global basis. And I would also point to, you know, the, the operators are very interested in seeing this happen. If you look at the membership makeup of the Open RAN Alliance and the Open RAN Policy Coalition, uh, you know, it's Telefonica, AT&T, Verizon, um, all the, the major global players are, are very keen to, to have options in, in this market um, because, again, they, they don't want to be beholden to uh, just a small number of vendors that can uh, provide this type of equipment. Great, thank you. Um, all right, and so my next question is, um, looking further forward, um, how dependent on 5G standards will 6G be if it's indeed viable? Uh, well, I think the short answer is we don't know yet. Uh, now, there there is a lot of interesting work in 6G going on in terms of uh, you know next generation approaches. There, uh, so uh, the terahertz range, for example, is one of the areas that's being looked at. But you know, what what 6G will be, um, you know that that no one knows yet. Um, I, I think in the you know, next four to five years, we'll have a better understanding of that. But the actual standard setting for that, you know, we're probably six, seven, eight years out from uh, from really understanding what that's all going to look like. But that's a great point because we need to really start thinking strategically now about what beyond 5G technologies will be. Um, you know, Japan is probably the farthest ahead of, of uh, all the major telecom uh, technology countries. Uh, they have a fairly solid 
beyond 5G strategy in place with a pretty detailed timeline of what they want to achieve and when. Um, China has announced that they are investing heavily in 6G R&D, although the details are a little scarce. But uh, Finland, the United States, and other countries are doing the same thing. I think what's missing in most cases is that strategic vision, um, you know, the, the guidelines that, that people would need to start thinking about it, um, in particular because you want to start planning for um, development and deployment. So the spectrum issue is going to be key. But even here, the FCC has already made um, a segment of, uh, of the terahertz spectrum available for U.S. research institutes and companies to start you know, doing some initial uh, research into what potential 6G technologies could look like. Thanks, Martin. Uh, Yuka and Elsa, do you guys have any follow-up comments? I would just add that I, I remain a little bit skeptical of talk of 6G when 5G is still at a nascent stage on so many fronts, and we have yet to explore or exploit the full potential of 5G, but yet, as as Martin mentioned, uh, China's Ministry of Science and Technology has launched a 5G uh, group focused on research and development and exploring that potential, so I think it doesn't hurt to be thinking ahead, and if we are, if we are looking uh, beyond this decade and further into the future, I think certainly having a perhaps learning for, for the United States, if we are trying to learn the lessons from the our slow start in looking at 5G, and cer certainly trying to think think ahead about 6G, what that might be, and how we might start to position ourselves now uh, to to avoid some of these problems recurring, and make sure we have have the spectrum, are supporting the uh, re basic research in a really forward thinking manner, and have some of the national infrastructure, even just the workforce in place. Uh, uh, within that industry uh, it, it is a place to start at the very least. And I think uh, I'm sure we will hear m much more about 6G uh, in, in the years to come. But I think for the time being, keeping the focus on how to ensure that 5G itself is, is secure and reliable. And especially when we've seen the backlash, conspiracy theories, the not in my backyard mentality with uh, some of the new uh, deployments coming out. So I think there's a lot, a lot of work to be done in the meantime. All great points. Um, and so my next question then is, you know, the um, experience that we've had so far. Oh, sorry, Yuka, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, sorry, if I may add about, um, so since Martin talked about uh, Japan's beyond 5G strategy on 6G, um, there are several, of course, we don't know um, the specifics about the 6G yet, but um, according to the Japanese strategy that just um, came out in the end of June, it seems like they're prioritizing the course open interfaces, but um, also um, technologies that could um, minimize the power consumption, for instance, or um, there's some kind of domestic alliances formed by NTT and NEC, for instance, um, on, um, on a technology for an innovative optical wireless network. And there's also um, so, some, some um, points about um, using the quantum technology. So probably these are the areas that Japan is aiming um, um, to standardize in, in 60. Um, and in terms of the timeline, it seems like um, 2025 is one of the, 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 um, the, the year that Japan wants to set some kind of milestones um, to showcase their technology. Um, but also, I just wanted to point out that um, um, it was very interesting to see the, the government strategy that really emphasizes the early stage collaboration with international um, other like-minded partners. Um, so, so I think one of the challenges right now is that um, with, without, a, without a clear government strategy, like um, Japan, I'm probably going to be 
quite challenging um, for to, to to find find ways to um, to to seek for joint R and D opportunities. Yeah, I think that's a great point because you know if you if you want to start looking at photonics, for example, as an application in, in beyond five G technologies, it would be extremely helpful for like minded countries to to get in alignment on that type of research direction early. Um, so sooner you start figuring out what the, the the core aspects of beyond 5G looks like, the sooner you can start doing the you know the development work and the standard setting and so forth. Which you know to Einicke's point earlier will hopefully help us avoid a lot of the the difficulties that we're facing with 5G today. And I'll just add that Huawei claims to be spending 20 billion this year on research and development and. And certainly uh, Tencent has announced some major investments as well. And within the United States, uh, to ensuring that uh, American companies have incentives to be investing in R&D through measures like tax credits and having U.S. government support for the long-term research going forward and thinking, thinking creatively about uh, how, we, how we approach S&T strategy or strategy for innovation that uh, really concentrates across the board on having, having the talent, having the opportunities available to start looking at some of these options that are more on the horizon is the best way we can compete uh, uh, in the meantime, and ensure that the U.S. is positioned to to explore the, these various options as they start to become uh, more feasible going forward. So what I'm hearing here basically is that, you know, timeline and strategy are really important. And so, you know, in the 5G case, um, we've seen that the U.S. and a lot of other democracies um, were a little bit slow to acknowledge certain risks and then to offer some alternatives. And then so my next question for the panel is, what lessons can nation states take going forward to basically you know, avoid doing what we've done just now. I can, I can start with perhaps a perspective from, from DOD and how we've looked at this. And I think that there are le lessons learned in terms of communication, content and method out to commercial sector and to the providers to uh, adequately express the concerns that the DoD community has, but then also, again, reaching out and listening to understand what the concerns might be from the commercial sector, again, around those security issues so that you can get ahead of those so that you don't, you know, start running down a path and then suddenly hit roadblocks that could have realistically um, been avoided. I think another really important piece is uh, practical acknowledgement of where technology is and where, again, to your point about timeline, certain technologies may be applied or not. And so a couple of examples of that are, you know, millimeter wave again, to, to circle back to that previous example is an exquisite capability that holds a really interesting potential, uh, but is not currently quite ready for prime time, but something that we're definitely working on and in the long term will have massive impact on capability. Similarly, ORAN is something where I think a few folks have touched on this, but you know, its ability to scale right now and how long you have and uh, to have those conversations with, co with companies to understand where realistically do you see this going and when is it going to be deployed so that you can then back out the requirements for policy making and for certain conversations that you need to have internally in government uh, will help the process in general. But again, honest assessment of where we are really at. So you have zero trust architecture as a concept for very specifically managing network security but there has increasingly been a use of the word zero trust to describe more of a mindset towards broader applications than simply network security. 
and in the context of supply chain security, um, that I think that certainly holds true in that, you know, you don't want to say that you don't trust anyone in the supply chain, but it's more just that you are assuming everyone that that assuming at any point that there may have been a compromise somewhere along that chain. And for that reason, you build in the necessary structures along the entire chain to ensure that either you can trace where something went wrong or if something went wrong, then it gets held at the gate at the net, uh, either at the network or within the network when you're trying to get into little siloed pieces of information or data that, you, that are critical to you. And so I think that in general, you know, it almost acceptance of the fact that this that the supply chain will continue to expand is going to be a critical piece of that and then mitigating it by ensuring that at every single piece from the hardware to the firmware to the software you're implementing best practices in terms of security uh, will do the best that you can to mitigate those challenges that you just described of having these increased numbers of folks coming into an open architecture yeah, that's a great point. I, I think in particular the uh, Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, the report that they came out recently has, they've laid out a really uh, comprehensive strategy uh, exactly along the lines of what you were talking about. So that may be a good model to, to look to for, for these types of issues as well. Um, Elsa, there's, there's an interesting question here about the uh, uh, Sino-Russian uh, relationship on 5G. Um, given that you've been uh, writing on the, the broader bilateral relationship lately, uh, do you have any uh, any thoughts, any insight into the particular question that Grant asks? Uh, sure, that is a great question. And uh, a question uh, that Grant had raised is, why is Russia seemingly unconcerned about Chinese involvement in their 5G networks? And, and I guess my response would be, I, I think that there is some concern from Russian leaders about uh, the growing dominance of uh, Chinese technology, even within Russia's domestic uh, domestic market. And Huawei has been moving into Russia in a, in a big way, especially as they've lost ground and lost access to other markets and other partners. And yeah, I think the Russian government uh, probably <laughs> they have a trust but verify or don't trust and verify mentality on this. Of There have been complaints from Russian experts about uh, incidents of cyber theft or poor quality of Chinese technology. So I think there is, there is some concern there. And certainly the Sino-Russian relationship is uh, complicated uh, historically and in and uh, with the contemporary dimensions of it, but there is a growing emphasis on high-tech cooperation, as my colleague Sam, Sam Bendad and I have worked on uh, and tracked over the past couple of years. So I think we will continue to see uh, growing engagement on these fronts because there is a mutual benefit and, and shared imperatives as both uh, China and Russia have less access to foreign, especially American technologies and opportunities for engagement. And Huawei, for instance, sees the benefits of uh, hiring Russian engineers and uh, technical specialists uh, and uh, trying to uh, leverage that talent and expertise to, uh, to advance its efforts and also continuing to promote the deployment of its technologies within Russia. So I think it's, there's a level of opportunism there. And I think, I think trust is relative and uh, Moscow may trust Beijing uh, and Chinese technology quite a bit more than they trust the United States. And so I think at the end of the day, it's a uh, convenience, the opportunity to move, uh, to move into 5G and, uh, I, and uh, perhaps some confidence that Russian cybersecurity uh, professionals can uh, can manage and mitigate those risks. 
All right, we're starting to wind down. So I'll just ask one more question and then open it up to the panel for any closing thoughts you might have. Um, so in our discussion today, we've talked about, you know, government industry relations, boosting competitiveness, um, what it means to have a, um, a strategy for technology. And so um, what do you think are the key, if you had a top three key tenets of um, what U.S. or other dem democratic leadership um, can take going forward for technology competition across the board? Martin, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, well, first and foremost, um, you know, any sound technology needs a clearly articulated vision of what it is you're seeking to achieve. So that, that should be first and foremost. Um, I think in particular, given the strategic competition we're in, uh, there has to be the realization that there's, there's no effective unilateral approach uh, to technology policy. So really taking a multilateral approach with allies and partners, wherever it makes sense, is, is the wise choice. Um, and ultimately, it's a, it's a matter of, of making the right investments. Um, so in particular, in the case of the United States, you know, we're still very much coasting on investments in R&D that we made back in the 60s and 70s. If you look at what our economy is based on, semiconductors, um, uh, you know, the internet, the global positioning system, these are all investments we made decades ago. And we really have to start thinking about what the investments for our future need to be. Things like artificial intelligence and quantum science, um, genomics. There's a whole range of, of issues that uh, we need to pay closer attention to, and not just looking at R&D spending, but looking at human capital. And that's you know education, but that's also high-skilled immigration. Um, because again, you know, America isn't producing enough science and technology graduates to, to meet the need. So we have to be smarter about how we manage our human capital, uh, both within the United States and uh, in cooperation with allies as well. So just as a few initial thoughts, th those would be three priority areas. All right, great. And just in our last minute here, um, Elsa, Skylar, and Yuka, do you have any closing thoughts that um, you'd like to share with our audience today? Let's see. I guess I'd say first that openness can be a competitive advantage, whether we're talking about open approaches to technology or openness to immigration. And I think if we, whether we're thinking about uh, competition or the kind of country we want to be, trying to sustain that openness on many fronts is really critical going forward. And, and, and I would add as well that I think when we're talking about emerging technologies, these issues can be very, very abstract. And there can be a lot of hype, a lot of alarmism, but I think we really need to draw the connections between the kinds of capabilities we're talking about and the potential for tangible benefits to Americans in their day-to-day -day lives. And what, why do we believe 5G is important? Why do we think it's so critical to to progress in AI and how do we how do we recenter our notion of national security and and technology in a way that really centers the security and well-being of Americans the uh, sustained development of our economy given the criticality of recovery and the depths of the crisis we see ourselves in and I think the more we can really connect the dots and cre create buy-in and try to create uh, the will to really move forward on these fronts. I hope we can, I hope we can see the positive potential of, 
of these technologies and many friends, whether we're talking education or healthcare and yeah, and, and compete in a way that is consistent with our with our principles and values going forward while keeping security in mind and and recognizing the systemic threats that we're seeing, uh, not just from potential adversaries, but uh, in, uh, in in the world around us. And yeah, I'm, I'm try, I try to be optimistic these days to the extent it's possible, given all that's happening. And I think there's certainly much to, much to look ahead to. Sure. I'll add on to that just a, a few comments. So absolutely agree with everything. And I particularly appreciate this conversation because I think that it's going a, a level beyond what you're buying to how you buy it, which I think is a critical piece of having that holistic conversation about some of this tech. Um, and then as always with, with any form of technology and including 5G, uh, the reminder that I would always push out to folks is that it is an enabler. It is not the end goal. And so I think that Elsa certainly spoke to this, but you have to remember what you are trying to do with it rather than suddenly just achieving it without having that real idea of how you're implementing it at all. Um, so I, I agree with a lot of the panelists and I, I think I especially wanted to echo what Martin mentioned about how um, unilateral approach would not solve, um, solve or um, foster um, technology um, developments and um, that um, multilateral cooperation would really be the key. And I, I also wanted to emphasize that um, governments, um, for instance, o open interfaces was an industry Initi um, driven initiative, but it's always very important for governments to structure markets and even to foster co competition or free market competition. It's really the government who can help and support policy um, measures to foster the open um, competition in the market. And also government has a very important role to coordinate with, 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 with partners in other countries. And uh, I specifically wanted to emphasize that um, Although it's um, inclusiveness is going to be the key for, for the future, not just the 5G, but for anything related with national security, any industry related with um, national security, um, including 5G, but also, for instance, um, we have COVID-19 right now. So these um, health, health equipment and anything that relates to um, national security concerns would be critical for um, like-minded countries and trusted partners um, to collaborate and to jointly shape the market structure. Um, um, so just wanted to, to um, add that as my final thoughts. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, we're just slightly over time here. Um, thank you so much, Elsa, Yuka, Skylar, and Martin for really enlightening discussion today. Um, I certainly look, uh, learned a lot. I hope our audience did as well. Um, thank you to everyone for joining us today and for your questions. Um, stay safe and we'll look forward to seeing you at our next event. Thank you so much. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.